Hi, and welcome to Parallel Worlds. I hope you enjoyed the writing exercises this week. This is one of the longer podcasts in which I will focus on a single topic, giving a rough overview of something, at least enough that you can get some ideas and generate some work from it. This week's topic is counterfactuals. I will be talking about the role that counterfactuals can play in the creation of worlds, as well as the role they already play in your life. How are counterfactual scenarios used at the micro level, and how can we use them at the macro level? But first, a word from our sponsor. I'll be back after this. This podcast and the following message is sponsored by What Might Have Been. Worried about something you did? Wish you hadn't said that thing to that person? They probably think you're an idiot now. How could you have done it better? Couldn't you have said that instead? Are you a total failure? A world of possibilities awaits you at What Might Have Been. What Might Have Been. The grass could have been greener. Hello again. In this course, we're running all of our activities in parallel. On the one hand, we're looking at cold hard reality, the studio practice you already have, the work you already produce, and the life you already live. And on the other hand, we're playing with fiction, the made up, the fantastical, the magically real, the make-believe. This week, you've done five sets of writing activities, all of which reflect this duality. The first activity each day has been to document the prosaic, the everyday, the space you're in, the routine you have. I'm really curious to hear what you made of these exercises. What is your life like right now? What details did you think were important enough to write down? What made a good subject, and what did you discard? What parts did you take for granted? And which parts seem like they'd be interesting to somebody else? The other side has been the fantastical. I've asked you to do five other writing activities, starting with a warm memory, something sensorial, what could have been, a narrow escape, a near miss, and a change you would have made. The first one was really a sort of a warm-up, a way to think about how to gather sensory information and sort of just how to write. The other four all built towards this episode about counterfactuals. They all relied on a narrative of something that didn't happen but could have something we term a counterfactual. Now, I'm going to do the most cliched thing I can here and whip out some dictionary definitions. Counterfactual, adjective, relating to or expressing what has not happened or is not the case. Noun, a counterfactual conditional statement. E.g., if kangaroos had no tails, they would topple over. Thanks, Oxford English Dictionary. Just a note, a lot of podcasts use the American Merriam-Webster Dictionary, but being British myself, my default is always going to be Oxford, so all the definitions that you hear in this podcast will be Oxford definitions. So, relating to something which has not happened or is not the case, it's exactly what the word describes, counter, against, and factual, indisputable truth. But what does this mean, and why is it important to us? Well, let's think about use cases of counterfactuals. First of all, we use counterfactuals all the time in the way that we think every day, evaluating potential consequences from the mundane to the profound. There's the upward counterfactual, where you think of something that could have been better. If only I'd skipped breakfast, I'd have made the bus. If I'd checked the weather, I definitely would have bought an umbrella. If I'd just had three different numbers on my lottery ticket, I'd be a millionaire. Then there's a downward counterfactual, where you pose scenarios which could have been worse. 
If I hadn't checked the weather today, I'd be soaking right now. If I hadn't braked in time, I'd have hit that car. If Tony hadn't sold his stocks before the crash, he'd have lost his house. Normally, these are the sort of thing you would say thank goodness to. The counterfactual can range from something tiny. Damn it, if only I checked my pockets, I wouldn't have washed my phone. To the absolutely huge. What if the Americas had never been colonized? If you've seen the 1998 romantic comedy Sliding Doors, you'll be familiar with this topic. In that film, Gwyneth Paltrow plays a character whose life changes when she either makes it onto an underground train and meets the love of her life, or she doesn't. The film plays out both scenarios, ending with the happiest, which poses the unhappy one, where I think she dies, as the counterfactual scenario, the one that never happened. Here I must admit I've never seen Sliding Doors, but... I think we can use it as a way to think about how counterfactuals work. A counterfactual scenario needs a point where reality branches in one direction and the counterfactual scenario branches in the other. In Sliding Doors, it's the moment that gives the film its title, when Gwyneth Paltrow either misses or makes it onto her train. We can call this a bifurcation point or a branch point. It's funny how the present sometimes seems inevitable, as if it was predestined all along. I know in my life there are countless tiny things which led to my being here right now, and parts of my life which felt like they were somehow supposed to be. Picture your life as a line, from the moment you're born until today. Each time you make a decision, no matter how tiny, the line branches into two. One that you can see, the action you took, and one that you can't see, the action you didn't take. If you had a perfect memory, and of course nobody does have a perfect memory, you could follow that line back to your birth and trace all those millions and millions of decisions. How would your life have been different if you had chosen peanut butter instead of jam on the 23rd of March 2014? What if you had cycled instead of taking the bus that day? The present that you live in now could be completely different based on something that seemed completely arbitrary at the time. For every decision you did make, of course, there's another path that could have unfurled again, which generated its own tree with millions more branches further down the line. There are so many alternatives that could have existed within your life, let alone the world as a whole. You could be a completely different person by now, and the world could be completely different too. What could the furthest branch from where you are right now look like? How could a minor or a major decision have played out differently? How different could the later versions of similar decisions look further down the line? There's a version of this thought experiment in quantum physics, the many worlds theory by Mark Everett, which proposes that the universe does actually exist in this manner, that every time there can be two possibilities, the universe actually multiplies and both possibilities become simultaneous realities. The two realities can't interact with each other, but both do exist at the same time. I don't normally go too far into quantum physics in these podcasts, not because I don't want to, but because I don't feel I know enough myself to talk about it authoritatively. But given that the course is called Parallel Worlds, let's spend a couple of minutes in this strange idea. Schrodinger's cat is a famous thought experiment in quantum physics. Picture a cat in a sealed box that you can't see into. Alongside the cat is a vial of poison, a piece of radioactive material, and a Geiger counter plugged into a hammer. If the Geiger counter detects a single atom decaying, it shatters the vial of poison and kills the cat. Since radioactivity is something that seems to operate completely at random to us outsiders, 
by which I mean we couldn't predict it accurately, there's no way for us to know if the cat is alive or dead at any one time. This is a really famous thing within quantum physics. It's something that people always refer to. The first thing if you talk about quantum physics is always Schrodinger's cat. But in Hugh Everett's multiple world scenario, the cat is both alive and dead simultaneously, but that alive cat and that dead cat just exist in different universes. Have I lost you? Perhaps. I hope not too much. Let's get back to something a bit more designy. Remember earlier when I said there are certain things you feel are just inevitable in your life? Perhaps you met your soulmate and you can't imagine life without them, or you love the work you do so much, or whatever else it is. It seems like whatever happens, you would have ended up in that situation anyway. Well, it probably isn't the case. In Everett's many worlds, there are billions of parallel versions of you living all sorts of different lives. But there are also billions and billions of different people who could have been you, but made of different sperm and eggs, your parents with different partners, and so on. If you picture your life as a line again, think how differently the version of you who's furthest the way is if they took different decisions really early on in those branching points. And now think about the world around you. The reality we live in today could have been very different. Today, for example, it seems inevitable that phones are mostly iPhone-shaped, sort of candy bar things with a shiny touchscreen on the front. Ten years ago, that form that we know today was just one of many designs. Things that popped open, things that had full keyboards, funny stick-on bits, you held sideways, all sorts of stuff, rubber padding, you name it. But somehow, today it seems completely inevitable that all of our phones are sort of a square shape with a big screen on the front that you touch and a button at the bottom, or not a button at the bottom, but they look about the same thing. But then what if the path had branched differently 10 years ago? Or 20, or 30, or 50 years ago when the technologies that made the current phones possible were just being developed? How would you plot a counterfactual reality that ended up with a different type of phone to the ones we use every day? This is a kind of trivial example, but what about something like the internet? Again, today it feels like constant connectivity, Wi-Fi, 4G, social media, cloud storage, all of that kind of thing are just somehow inevitable that they would have happened no matter what. But that isn't the case. The protocol for the World Wide Web, which is the thing that enabled the internet you know and probably love today, was based on the designs of one scientist, Tim Berners-Lee, in 1989. He came up with a design whilst he was a software engineer at CERN. But what if, after he'd graduated from Oxford, he'd, instead of moving to Switzerland, met a lover who encouraged him to move to the depths of Brazil? Would someone else have designed the same thing? Probably not or at least not in exactly the same way. If you were devising an interesting scenario here, where would you put the bifurcation point? In my example, I chose a love interest because it's completely lazy. We're all familiar with the idea that love, or at least lust, can make you act in irrational ways. So I suppose you could create all manner of lazy counterfactual scenarios just by inserting a love interest into an historical figure's life. A side note for the historians and science and technology studies people here, I know that the internet we know today is the result of countless people's work, largely unseen, but 
For this scenario, I wanted to pick an example where you can directly see the impact of one person on a much larger system. You can find Bernalee's drawings for the World Wide Web systems and diagram online still, and if you're a very technologically and counterfactually inclined person, you might take those and imagine a completely different diagram producing a different internet to the one we know today. And now a word from our sponsor. This podcast and the following message is sponsored by What Might Have Been. Think about that time it almost went so wrong. Whether you nearly stepped in front of a car, stopped yourself from falling, or almost lost it all, what could have happened doesn't bear thinking about. Except it does with what might have been. Start thinking about what might have been today, and we'll add in a free extreme scenario and a thought loop you can play over and over in your mind again. What might have been? What might have been? What might have been? Inside your mind, all the time. So far, we've established that counterfactual scenarios can be used to imagine difference, mostly in our own lives. If I hadn't met that person in a tenuous way, I wouldn't be here right now. I want to talk a little bit about how they use an industry, then take it back to what you're here for. How can I use counterfactuals in my own design or art practice? How can I create counterfactuals? What purpose can they serve me? And how can they help me to create worlds in and around my work? I read an interesting paper last year called Reimagining History, Counterfactual Risk Analysis by Gordon Wu et al. It was actually presented at a week-long workshop about counterfactuals, which had some incredible participants, which I attended last year and I will talk about a bit later. But the paper was written for Lloyd's Insurance Group, and it's aimed at introducing counterfactual thinking to the insurance industry. I'll quote Wu here, talking about what the paper encompasses. Whenever an event occurs that takes the insurance market by surprise, questions are asked how the loss might have been averted or what additional risk mitigation measures might have reduced the loss. It's also useful for insurers and other interested parties to ask how the loss might have been worse. This is known as downward counterfactual analysis. Upward counterfactual analysis considers what might have happened if things had been better. Downward counterfactual analysis is rarely carried out and yet there is huge value in doing so. In statistical analysis, historical data is usually treated as fixed rather than one possible version of many that could have occurred if various influencing factors had been different. So essentially the paper is arguing that downward counterfactual analysis, analysis of things that could have gone much worse but didn't, is something the insurance industry should do in order to improve its mathematical modeling. If there's a near miss, say a huge oil tanker nearly gets capsized in a storm, the insurance company normally just sighs with relief that they won't have to pay millions of dollars in compensation. But actually what the industry should do is log and model all of these near misses because they have great potential value for their data sets. However, this is something that already happens in the aviation industry. 2017, for example, was widely hailed as the safest year in aviation history. Donald Trump even took credit for the lack of crashes that year, despite not having really had anything to do with it at all. However, it very nearly wasn't the best year in history. 
On the 7th of July 2017, an Air Canada plane coming in for landing in San Francisco failed to see that there were already four fully loaded planes on the runway. Air traffic control managed to avert the aircraft from landing when it was just 30 metres from the ground. If it had been five seconds later, it would have definitely hit the third plane on the runway, probably causing more than 500 deaths. Five seconds later, sending that signal to to pull up, and it would have been the worst disaster in aviation history. But it wasn't. And later that year, Trump went and took the credit for a super safe year and everyone was happy. There are loads of other examples of times like this when a near miss could have caused chaos but didn't. I'd really recommend reading that paper that I talk about. There'll be a a link in the show notes and the transcript and so on. Um, But bizarrely, we humans tend to focus on the upward counterfactuals, the ones where we could have been better rather than the downward ones. Think about all the people you meet who define themselves by what they nearly were rather than what they nearly weren't. I remember as a kid being introduced to countless people who would say something like, oh yeah, I nearly played for Arsenal when I was younger, or yeah, I nearly made a million pounds on that thing, or I could have been the best at doing that. Whereas I hardly met anyone who introduced themselves as, yeah, I'm a multimillionaire now, but I nearly walked out in front of a bus in 1995, or yeah, I've got a lot right now, but I nearly lost it too. We do the same in art and design. We're often told that creativity is this strange and undefinable process, something that just happens. Our work, our thinking, is often so circumstantially tenuous that the likelihood of that particular work actually being made, in the form it is right now, relies on very specific sets of events. Yet, we often take the strange happenstances as evidence we're good at what we do. I know with my projects that quite Often, the strange little thing that saved the work was the result of something coincidental and something that very nearly didn't happen. We're completely used to, in our work, watching TED-style talks where that process someone used is completely post-rationalized and presented as inevitable, the same way that I described the development of the iPhone and aspects of my own life feeling inevitable earlier on. I wonder, as a design exercise, if you could think about the work you're most proud of, the work that in some way defines your practice, and try to run through a downward counterfactual of its creation. I think it's quite hard to do. What might it have looked like, or how might your life have been different if it hadn't worked out exactly the way it did? I actually find that thought quite a scary one to take on. I feel completely passionately about the work I do and it's really hard for me to decouple the work from my own identity. But I find the exercise sort of useful in thinking about what the components and workflows are that are really important to my creative process. Thinking about how the best bits happened before and the consequences that could have occurred if they hadn't been there could help you to shape the circumstance for future success. So, this episode's actually turning out to be a bit longer than I'd wanted it to be. I still feel there's a lot that I could talk about, but I also want to respect your time and not just make you listen to me waffling on for hours and hours. So far, we've focused on lots of real-world counterfactuals, if you can call a counterfactual in any way real-world. Let's finish with a couple of examples of counterfactual techniques for creating fictional worlds. There are loads of examples of counterfactuals that you can find in fiction. 
the popular TV series The Man in the High Castle a couple of years ago on Amazon Prime is based on the book by Philip K. Dick. It's based on a counterfactual world in which the Axis, rather than the Allies, won the Second World War, and the Japanese and German forces have divided up the United States. It paints a picture of a 1950s America in which the iconography of Americana is permeated with Nazi ideology and aesthetics, and San Francisco is a distinctly Japanese place. Similarly, the 2007 mockumentary, CSA, Confederate States of America, poses a counterfactual scenario where the South won the American Civil War. In the film, this has lots of ramifications, largely related to scenario and civil rights, that kind of thing. But for example, the Confederate States of America avoid the 1929 stock market crash through continuing the slave trade. But that idea itself isn't actually that new. You know, that film was made in 2007, but in the early 1930s, Winston Churchill wrote a counterfactual account of what it might have looked like if General Lee had won the Battle of Gettysburg in a book with the charming retro way to pose counterfactuals, if it had happened otherwise. But there are just so many examples of this type of genre, these type of counterfactual histories that I could list. If you're curious, just jump down the Wikipedia rabbit hole of counterfactuals, counterfactual histories, counterfactual fiction, and this kind of thing. Just make sure you've got plenty of time to spare because there's so much material. So that is something that you can just find in your own time. But the last thing I want to talk about is setting up counterfactual scenarios yourself, perhaps as a way of creating work or creating an alternate backstory or context for your work, or just as a fun thought experiment. It's quite simple, but can take you in unexpected directions and generates new ways of thinking of possibilities. So let's start with the simplest part. You need to identify a bifurbication point, something that can branch elsewhere. The simplest way to do this might just be to pick a place and an event. For example, what if John F. Kennedy had not been shot, and carry on a scenario further up the chain? You'd have to carry out historical research, of course, line up different pathways and this kind of thing. But there's a part of me that resists this method, because it places a huge emphasis on individuals rather than societies and trends. Usually the results you get tend towards the political or the personal you know, people's stories, people's narratives. And as a designer, I find this a limiting way to think about design. Now, I came across a more interesting way of running counterfactual scenarios at the workshop I talked about earlier. This was a workshop at the Lorentz Center in Leiden last year. And there were lots of activities, but one that really stood out for me was run by Joseph Evangel, the project leader for SLU Futures Lab in Stockholm and she ran an activity in which she asked groups to think about sanitation. She posed a really simple sounding question which yielded a huge range of proposals from all the groups that were there. That question was, what if the flushing toilet had never been allowed to exist? Now, I want to point out here that there's something great in the way that this question was phrased. If it had just been, what if the flushing toilet hadn't been invented? we probably would have all gone off and started drawing alternative designs for toilets, mostly technical solutions, you know, maybe we don't use water for this and we use composting for that or something like that. But the brief wasn't really questioning the technical values of the toilet. It asked for a questioning of why a flushing toilet wouldn't have been allowed. What kind of society wouldn't allow flushing toilets? 
how could we pose a scenario that means the concept of flushing and wasting all that water isn't even considered by the people who are living in a society? The ways that people responded were completely varied. One of the groups envisioned a society where at some point the act of defecation had become social, with the produce of defecation sessions being valued as fertiliser and the position of the poo itself being a revered thing in society. The group I was in conceived of a world where in the 14th century a generation-long drought in Italy had created a religious reverence for water which had spread throughout Europe and become standard. Somewhere along the line it had become illegal for feces to touch water so that the precious liquid substance wouldn't become contaminated. This led to the creation of numerous dry toilet systems and little boats that would carry poo up and down rivers to sanctified dumping grounds, if you'll pardon the pun. Now, whilst these ideas can become silly and fanciful, the thing that Josephine's exercise allowed for was thinking about different possibilities outside of our current paradigm of thinking, something it's nearly impossible to break out of normally. That's where counterfactual thinking can be really interesting in this current moment where we're faced with so many crises. It shouldn't be that much of a surprise then that Josephine and some of the other people who organised that workshop had collectively written a paper imagining a world in which there'd only been half the oil to start with. The ideas behind this kind of counterfactual thinking are more about finding alternative ways to think and using these to rethink things that we do and take for granted today. In the case of the toilets example, perhaps thinking about alternative societies who couldn't even envision the type of toilet that we have today might yield a way of thinking about toilets that helps make better sanitation right now. And thinking about a society who only had half the oil, as the workshop organisers did with their paper, might help us think and move towards a less hydrocarbon-based economy. So this second method of posing counterfactuals, taking something that we take for granted today and creating a reason for it not to exist, can result in genuinely new thinking. This week on the podcast, within the sort of exercises version, the shorter episodes, we'll be running exercises that do stuff that's very much on that theme. Little things that change the way that the world is seen today and try to pose a different world alongside the one that we already have. So that's about it for this podcast. But before I go, I should mention that this is by no means an extensive overview of counterfactuals. This is something I've put together today very quickly as a bunch of thoughts about counterfactuals and how you can use them in design thinking. A really good place to start if you want to look wider than just my rambling is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. That's at plato.stanford.edu. And it has an excellent entry on counterfactuals and their role in history. Also, you could look at Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky's work, who have done lots of modeling about the psychology of counterfactuals. They came up with lots of the research that showed that people prefer upward counterfactuals to downward counterfactuals. There's also Catherine Gallagher's book, Telling It Like It Wasn't, which is about counterfactual histories. There are so many other writers and academics and scholars and so on who create entire counterfactual worlds. And of course, that doesn't even mention the billions and billions of people who've written about counterfactuals, but whose work we can't see because they only exist in a counterfactual parallel universe.
Thanks for listening to Parallel Worlds. As ever, let me know if the show was good or bad or anything else. You can leave a message for the show if you've got any questions, any thoughts, any criticisms, whatever else. There's a link in the show notes. And I look forward to hearing whatever you think about it. So thank you very much for listening.